Hi, again, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Roxanne. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of South Florida. In this talk, I'm going to cover the type of research that I do, how it aligns with a feminist perspective, and what some current efforts are to make science more transparent. I also want to be clear that I'm positioning this talk within my own experience as a young woman who talks about science in public spaces and how the intersection of my work and social media has really impacted my career so far. And I want to start it all off by sharing an experience that happened to me last year that really ties all of this together. So in the summer of 2021, my first paper where I was the first author was published. This means that I'm responsible for any, anything that comes up with this paper. If anyone has questions or comments or concerns, they reach out to me and it's really my paper. Um, and I was ecstatic. You know, this is a big milestone in any academic's career, getting your first first author paper. And it's also a rigorous process. Um, we went through three journal rejections before finally finding a journal that sent it out for peer review, went through three rounds of peer review before it was published, and that's not uncommon. I've had papers in review for upwards of three years. So by the time this particular paper was finally published, I was so excited. I was so proud of it. It was such fun research. And so because I was so excited by by the research and invigorated by having my first paper published, I decided to post a summary of it on TikTok. And you can never really tell what video on TikTok is going to gain attention, but this particular video went viral. I ended up being covered by every news source. Here's a snippet of me from, I think, the Huffington Post, maybe. I was interviewed live on BBC. Really, it gained so much traction. And as a result of the attention that it gained, I became the target of harassment, not from people on TikTok, but actually people, mainly established male academics within my field. And it started with a senior academic bringing doubt to the validity of the statistics reported in the paper, as well as minimizing the research topic here in this tweet, tagging his friends to join in on the mockery, never actually reaching out to me to have a discussion. And it was only brought to my attention after it had been circulating for quite some while and made its way to my professional department. So when this was brought to my attention, because I, you know, am like vocal and outspoken, I stood up for myself and for my team. Um, I said, thank you for your thoughtful contribution to our work. I'll make sure to consider what men on Twitter do and do not find important for my next study. And it was this, uh, this manner in which I stood up for myself that prompted several waves of backlash. And so when I was designing this talk and thinking about what I wanted to cover, I revisited these threads and kind of what had happened in preparation. And looking back at it now, it really seems that there were some specific themes that emerged in how people reacted to our work and to the situation. One, there was minimization of the research topics. People said things like, how do women expect to be taken seriously with work like this? The original poster explaining why this kind of fun study cannot tell us anything about human behavior and indicating that I need to be taught how to avoid doing this kind of study in the future. There was some paternalism and kind of patronizing comments directed toward me. This person uh, offered to have a chat with me about why people viewed my study in a negative light and then admitted that he had never actually read the paper. 
Um, and then finally, there was some implicit and explicit denial of my competence and the competence of my five other female co-authors. Uh, this person, James Wiley, didn't believe that the statistics that I had presented were valid. So he went into the data that I had made publicly available, reanalyzed everything himself. And only after he had done the analyses did he reach out to me to say that he thought that I did a very strong uh, job, that my analyses were very strong. And then people like James Coyne, who blatantly said, I suggest that you find some more competent collaborators before the next time you submit a study. So these were a few of the types of comments that I received, and it actually was a trending topic on Twitter. And a lot of people have to be talking about you and tweeting about you to be, to be trending on Twitter. So despite all of this backlash, um, which was very overwhelming as a graduate student, let me tell you, it prompted a wave of discussion about the subtle and sometimes blatant misogyny that permeates some of these scientific spaces. So this was a blog post written by an anonymous writer about the incident um, and kind of framing it in terms of this being a common occurrence for women, especially in scientific spaces. So I wanna use this experience as a whole to talk through what it means to be thoughtfully critical of research, how researchers try to do better science and how this ties into feminist science and being a woman in these spaces. And what's ironic is that this type of backlash, these gendered power dynamics and these implied and expressed attitudes towards women and our work is exactly what I study in my research program. So I'm a social psychologist in training. This means that I study how people think and behave in social situations. And broadly, the big questions of social psychology fall under these three categories. Social thinking, how do we define ourselves? How do we perceive people around us? Social influence, why are we persuaded by other people? When do we conform to other people? And social behavior, when are people likely to help? How do we form and maintain relationships? And under the big umbrella of social psychology are many specified sub areas. These are just a few. And many researchers' interests, myself included, are a combination of several of these areas. Although not exclusively, my research program typically incorporates aspects of gender dynamics, stereotypes and prejudice, attitudes, and the self. So very generally, I investigate attitudes toward women. And I do so while incorporating a feminist perspective. And this is a form of psychology that centers on the social structures of gender that critiques the historical influence that psychological research has had as being done from a male perspective with the view that men are the default or the norm and how the brain works or how people behave. And as a feminist researcher, there are some key tenets that I always try to incorporate. First, we're very clear to make a point to consider how social structures may impact not only the questions that we ask, but also the participants that we use in our research and the results that we find. So we consider the socio-historical and socio-cultural context surrounding our studies and who are involved in our studies and our findings. Secondly, we, we try to be critical about who we are studying. We look for who is consistently left out of research. We examine who's being understudied or maybe disproportionately studied to facilitate stronger understanding of how uh, results can generalize or represent the general public. And this is especially important in an age where so much psychological research is conducted online. I don't know if any of you have heard of MTurk, but it's a survey platform on Amazon where you can pay workers to take surveys really quickly. 
Um, and oftentimes these people are not really paying attention to the surveys. And yet so many of our modern psychological results are coming from these studies where we don't know who we're surveying. They're just people online or a large body of our research comes from university campuses where participants are mainly privileged, overwhelmingly white young people. We aim to promote disclosure and transparent reporting. So we're committed to honest reporting and building the scientific literature, being transparent about the choices that we make and being forthcoming about where we're positioned in relation to the questions that we are asking. And finally, we aim to expand access to research. We want to increase the accessibility of research, not only in terms of data, materials, and research products, but also who has access to those. So just in the way that we're streaming on TikTok right now, or even having this presentation, we aim to get the research into the hands of the people that we think that it will benefit. So using these principles as a guide, I investigate men's attitudes towards women, men and women's perceptions of other women and women's self-perceptions. And by understanding how women are impacted by their position in society, I aim to identify mechanisms that can ultimately benefit women's lives. But how do I investigate these ideas? Science is a rigorous process and typically we rely on what's known as the theory data cycle. So typically research starts with a theory, which is an organized set of related propositions intended to describe some aspect of the world. And that theory leads us to research questions. So specific questions that we have about aspects of the theory. And based on those questions, we can create research designs meant to test those specific aspects. And we generate hypotheses, which are specific predictions about what we think will happen in a given context. Based on the data that the hypotheses generate, sometimes a theory is supported, sometimes it's not. And that leads us to have to revise the theory. So this is a kind of dynamic generative process, meaning that researchers should be able to build off of existing theories, hypotheses, and findings to always be generating new knowledge. So I wanna talk about the research design aspect of this. When you think about research and specifically psychological research, you may not have a good frame of reference of what that looks like. Or maybe you think that psychological research is therapy, helping people through their problems. Or maybe you have an idea of someone in a lab studying mice and how they behave in controlled settings. Neither of those are social psychology. First off, therapy is not an empirical scientific research practice. Um, and secondly, social psychological research typically involves human subjects, not animals. So therefore, our study designs look a little bit different. So how do we do our research? How do we use this theory data cycle to answer questions? I'm going to walk through a project of ours to highlight some methods that we employ. So this is the study that prompted the backlash. And this study started out as observation of everyday human behavior, specifically historical and modern examples of women enduring pain for the sake of their appearance and prioritizing their fashion and their appearance over comfort. Rather than protesting these painful, uh, unreasonable and often dangerous um, trends, many women are often their most vehement supporter going out of their way to adhere to these standards, even when they pose um, physical harm or lasting pain and discomfort. Take this quote from a woman in 19, I'm sorry, in 1893, talking about her corset. 
She says, I myself have never felt any ill effects from nearly 30 years of the most severe tight lacing, nor have I yet found any authentic case of real harm being done by stays, even when laced to the utmost degree of tightness both day and night. Despite what this woman says, wearing corsets caused displaced ribs, crushed lungs, organs to be compressed against the spine. It made it so hard for women to breathe that most Victorian homes had fainting rooms where women could go to regain their consciousness. So although not as extreme as the corset, one modern commonly noted instance of when women choose to adhere to cultural beauty standards rather than being comfortable can be seen in how they choose to dress for nightlife. Despite the time of year or the evening temperatures, women seem to choose revealing dresses and skirts over more weather appropriate attire. And this is a pretty well recognized phenomenon. This specific example of wearing weather inappropriate clothing while out for a night on the town has earned a group of women from England known as the Geordie Girls uh, notoriety. They are notorious for donning these tiny outfits on below freezing nights. And so this photo is actually a photo of the Geordie girls that went viral uh, because this photo was taken in 10 degree Fahrenheit weather and they seem completely unbothered by the snowstorm occurring around them. And it prompts people to ask, are they cold? Are they feeling cold? Some researchers in England hypothesize that this is a result of thick skin, but haven't provided any evidence for that claim. And while researchers and other observers are noticing this pattern of behavior and trying to understand it, women are enduring and endorsing it to the point where it's become this cultural truism. Most notably, this phenomenon received mass cultural attention when rapper Cardi B went viral for posting a video. Uh, this is a snippet from her video where she um, showed her outfit and claimed that this was how she was going out, even though it was freezing, because, quote, a hoe never gets cold. And this quote, a hoe never gets cold, can be found in multiple variations on Urban Dictionary, as well as in other kind of pop culture references like this Arctic Monkeys song lyric. So this phenomenon of women being underdressed but seeming to be impervious to the cold weather uh, is understood by the masses to be something that happens, but we don't know why. So given that women are not naturally immune to cold weather, and there is no evidence yet supporting the argument that thick skin is behind it, we considered whether there might be a psychological explanation for this. As I mentioned, we typically start with a guiding theory when we do research. So this theory guides a lot of my work. It's called objectification theory. And it's actually built off of some philosophical feminist literature, which suggests that women's bodies are seen as objects, fragmented pieces removed from their personhood uh, that serve the purpose of being gazed at typically by men. So objectification theory took this philosophical framework and extended it to emphasize the mental health and psychological outcomes of experiencing this objectification on a daily basis. So they argue that girls and women are socialized to view themselves as objects meant for observation. And then over time, we come to internalize this third person's perspective on our body, which is a process known as self-objectification. And the theory outlines some main consequences of objectification. First and foremost, they do you know, provide reasoning and rationale as to when objectification and self-objectification could benefit us. First of all, when women adhere to cultural beauty standards, it serves as a form of social currency. People like other people who are pretty and who, you know, adhere to cultural standards. 
And also when we consistently check our appearance and monitor our bodies, it's a strategy to anticipate how others will view us and be able to adjust accordingly. However, objectification theory is clear to specify that there are an overwhelming number of consequences uh, resulting from self-objectification, namely body shame, anxiety, disruption of flow of consciousness, also depression, sexual dysfunction, and decreased awareness of internal bodily states. So based on this theoretical groundwork, you can see how we could start to form some research questions to test each of these outcomes. And in the study that I'm walking through, our research question was guided by this last tenet of objectification theory, that it leads to a decreased awareness of our internal bodily states. So the explanation, oh, so the explanation for this outcome is that as humans, our cognitive resources are limited. This is not a topic or an idea novel to objectification theory. This is well established in the psychological literature. Um, so basically, our cognitive resources are limited, and we have to decide what to pay attention to. And generally, the more that we have to focus on our appearance, the fewer cognitive resources we have available to think about other processes like how we feel. Um, Ember, can you uh, moderate or have um, someone moderate? It looks like there's something going on in the chat. Um, anyway, so there's plenty of evidence supporting this argument that self-objectification consumes cognitive and attentional resources among women. So in one study, female participants were <clears throat> asked to try on a swimsuit in a lab. And trying on a swimsuit is something that, you know, draws attention to your physical appearance should heighten self-objectification compared to women who were asked to try on a sweater in the lab. And then they completed a Stroop task, which is a reaction time task where you recognize words. And across conditions, regardless of the type of word that they were responding to, Participants who were wearing a swimsuit responded slower to the Stroop task, suggesting that being in a state of self-objectification actually impaired their cognitive performance. Then in another study, women but not men who were gazed at by someone working on behalf of the researchers, uh, so they were gazed at in kind of a sexual way, like they were checked out by someone working on the research team, uh, women performed poorly on a math test uh, compared to people who were not gazed at, suggesting that becoming aware of how our body looks to others disrupts cognitive processing and performance. So together, these findings and others suggest that self-objectification interrupts cognitive processing. And given that it usurps attentional resources in this way, attending to how the body looks may leave fewer attentional resources to assess how the body feels. So given this perspective, we were guided to the research question of, to the extent that women self-objectify in a natural setting, are they less aware of internal or bodily states? So some self-report survey data finds evidence that women who are high in self-objectification report feeling less connected to their body. They report less awareness and responsiveness to body sensations. They report difficulty recognizing hunger cues and difficulty recognizing and describing emotions. 
This relationship between self-objectification and body awareness has also been corroborated with controlled laboratory settings. Research finds that women who are high in self-objectification respond more strongly to a rubber hand illusion task. This is a task where a fake prosthetic hand is placed in front of a participant and their real hand is placed out of view. And the prosthetic hand is brushed uh, with a brush and the real hand is brushed, but they're brushed asynchronously. And women who are high in self-objectification report feeling the rubber hand being brushed as if it were their own more frequently and more strongly than women who are low in self-objectification. Other lab research using electrocardiograms find that women high in self-objectification are less accurate at detecting their own heartbeat compared to women low in self-objectification. So there is ample evidence to believe that self-objectification is directly related to reduced body awareness and inability to recognize internal cues. So this leads us to when we're thinking about our research design, we had to think, what do we want our study to add to the understanding of this relationship? We know based on the existing research provided that this relationship does exist. We know that people higher in self-objectification are lower in body awareness. What we don't necessarily know is what the direction of that relationship is. Does increased self-objectification cause reduced body awareness? Does reduced body awareness cause self-objectification? Is there some other variable that causes both higher self-objectification and lower body awareness? Um, but we also have to ask ourselves if we want to experiment, if running an experiment would actually answer the question that we're interested in. So there are some pros to conducting an experiment. It's, they're kind of seen as the gold standard of scientific research because you have a very high level of control. So in experimental designs, we're able to control nearly every aspect of the study. We randomly assign participants to our experimental group and our control group, keep everything else the same, and that way we're able to isolate our variable of interest. So if everyone does the same thing except for our one manipulation, any changes or differences in behavior at the end can be attributed to the one change that we made. And that means that we have high internal validity in experimental designs, meaning that we can establish a trustworthy cause and effect relationship. But there are also some cons to experimental design. First, they can be very uh, time consuming and very expensive. As you add more experimental variables and conditions, the number of participants that you need to recruit increases, so you need more people. You need to train researchers to make sure that everyone is administering the protocol equivalently. You need to compensate your participants accordingly. And as you have more participants, you need more money to pay them. Uh, more importantly though, I think in this uh, example is that it creates situations that people would never naturally be in. So it creates these artificial situations and we can't be sure that the way that people behave when we have them do an unfamiliar task in an unfamiliar setting and then monitor their behavior is actually how they would act in a natural setting. And that means that uh, experiments have low external validity. We're not sure how well they will translate or generalize to other uh, contexts. And finally, sometimes they just don't align with your research questions or they're not always feasible. If you wanna know how alcoholism predicts violence, you cannot ethically force someone into a condition where they become an alcoholic. You just have to work with people as they are. So given all of this, well, let's walk through a hypothetical experimental design of this because we did talk about this as a lab when we were trying to decide 
Do we want to experiment? Would this answer our question? Our hypothetical experimental design would use the bathing suit manipulation that I talked about. So in our experimental condition, we would manipulate self-objectification by having participants try on a swimsuit and evaluate their appearance in a full-length mirror versus a control condition where women would try on a sweater. And then we considered buying a cold presser um, or some, some apparatus that would allow participants to have their arms submerged in cold water. And we would ask them how cold they perceived the water. And we would have hypothesized that self-objectification that was induced from having women wear a revealing bathing suit would cause them to keep their arms submerged longer as a result of feeling less cold. And like I said, we talked about this. We went back and forth as a lab. We would have had to have bought a cold presser, make sure the temperature was always constant, buy an assorted range of bathing suits and sweaters for people to be able to try on in the lab. And this would have told us how an in-the-moment exposure to objectification affects women's tolerance to discomfort. But maybe people would have felt more compelled to keep their arms submerged because it was a research setting. Maybe women would have just felt uncomfortable all around because it's not a very realistic setting. So the research design that we uh, landed on was actually not a lab study in any way, and it wasn't an experiment. It was a field study where we actually went to bars and nightclubs on cold nights and surveyed women who were waiting in line. And we predicted that skin exposure should predict, uh, yeah, skin exposure should predict how cold women feel, right? That makes sense. It's cold out, you have more skin showing, you will feel colder. But we anticipated that self-objectification would moderate that relationship. So the relationship between skin exposure and feeling cold would be contingent on women's levels of self-objectification. So for example, if these women, these Geordie girls that I showed earlier were dressed like this in this weather and they were low in self-objectification, they should feel really cold and wish that they had brought a sweater or dressed differently. But if those same women dressed that way are high in self-objectification, they should not feel so cold. They're too focused on how they look. They're unable to recognize feeling uncomfortable. So like I said, we went out at night to bars and nightclubs and we surveyed women in line. We approached them. We asked them to do a study about women's fashion choices. And the first part of the survey was a measure of self-objectification. This is a validated, commonly used measure uh, measuring the extent to which women basically think about how they look instead of how they feel. So it asks questions like, I worry about whether the clothes I am wearing make me look good. And I think more about how my body feels than how my body looks, which would be a reverse coded item. After having them respond to the measure of self-objectification, we simply asked them to self-report how cold they felt from not at all cold to extremely cold. We asked them how intoxicated they felt, how many standard drinks they had consumed, and then some demographic information. After they completed the survey, we asked for permission to take a full body photo of their outfits. And this was so that we could measure their skin exposure, because remember, we anticipate that skin exposure will predict how cold they feel, but only among a specific group of people. So here's an example of a participant with their ID number redacted, and our coding scheme. So we came up with this coding scheme so that each participant would have a score of skin exposure where a higher score indicates more skin exposed. So this participant re received a score of seven, whereas this participant received a score of one. 
after we took their picture, we got their survey back from them and we recorded the true temperature at the time of data collection to include in the statistical analyses. And we compensated them with a glow in the dark bracelet before they went into their club. So who did we survey? We ended up with a sample of 185 women, about 22 years old on average, about 60% white, 14% Hispanic, 13% black, 4% Asian, 2% Middle Eastern, 2% biracial, and 63, sorry, 66% heterosexual. Just off the bat, I wanna point out that this is a much more diverse sample than what we would have collected if we had uh, recruited participants from our college campus that is kind of overwhelmingly white. Um, so that's a, a really strong part of the study that I'm really proud of is the diversity in the sample. So let's go over some of the kind of basic descriptive statistics. Now, let me preface this by reminding you all that I am at the University of South Florida, where it does not get exceptionally cold, but when it does get cold here, we are not prepared. So the actual temperature at the time of our data collection ranged from 46 degrees to 58 degrees. The average temperature across all of the nights that we were out was about 52 degrees. I can assure you it was very cold. I this is one limitation to the study that we can talk about at the end. I was out every night in a coat. It was windy. It was freezing. Um, on average, participants reported being moderately cold, about 3.4 on a scale of one to six, and they reported kind of less skin exposure, uh, three on the scale of zero to nine. They reported having about two and a half drinks, feeling a little bit intoxicated, and then the mean level of self-objectification was a little bit higher than the midpoint on the zero to six scale. I'm sorry, on the one to six scale. Okay, so let's look at the results. So this is the relationship between feeling cold and skin exposure among women who were low in self-objectification. And this is a positive relationship because as skin exposure increased, so did how cold they reported feeling. So this is kind of a, an intuitive relationship, right? It was chilly, they had more skin exposed, and so they reported feeling colder. And people who had less skin exposed reported not feeling as cold. However, that was not what we saw for women who were high in self-objectification. Among these women, there was a non-significant relationship and it was almost kind of, it was flat. It was kind of like a zero relationship. So among these women who are highly focused on their physical appearance, their skin exposure did not predict how cold they felt. And so looking at this a little bit further, this is kind of more stats heavy, but skin exposure on its own did not predict how cold women felt. Self-objectification on its own did not predict how cold women felt. Even the true temperature at the time of data collection did not predict how cold women felt. The only thing that predicted how cold they reported feeling was the interaction of how much skin they had exposed and their level of self-objectification. And breaking this down a little bit further, this is kind of a complex graph, but bear with me. This dark gray shaded region shows the area in which the relationship between skin exposure and self-objectification was significant. So the positive relationship between these two variables was, was, was significant only for women who scored a 3.43 or lower on the measure of self-objectification, which is actually below the mean in our sample. I, I believe our sample mean was like 3.69 out of six. So these results suggest that only women who are 
low, like low below the mean in self-objectification demonstrate this correspondence between how much clothing they are wearing and how cold they report feeling. Um, and as self-objectification increases, even at the average level in our sample, this association weakens and becomes negative. And just because everyone always asks, we repeated these analyses, including the true temperature at the time of data collection, how intoxicated they reported feeling, the number of drinks they had, their age, and their body mass index, and it remains unchanged, the same relationship emerges. So we're pretty confident in these results. So what did the study tell us? It told us that self-objectification provides an explanation as to why some women report not feeling cold when they should. So self-objectification predicts this disconnect from bodily states. And this affects women not just in the lab where they complete unfamiliar tasks like the rubber hand illusion, but also in their everyday experiences. Notably, as I mentioned, women at the mean level of self-objectification indicated by this pink line uh, also lacked a relationship between skin exposure and cold perception, suggesting that this disconnect from bodily sensations is not an issue solely for women who are high in self-objectification, but may also be the case for just the average woman who's out for the night on the town. It also may have been, though, that we had triggered self-objectification in some way, maybe because we, you know, were taking photos of participants that could increase their focus on their appearance. Maybe people were out with a group of friends or they were on a date. So it's possible that we captured a heightened in the moment level of self-objectification rather than a stable personality related trait level. But regardless, the results still hold. So what implications does this have? Women in our study were at little risk for hypothermia. It was between 48 and 56 degrees, right? But these women, the Geordie girls who are out in 10 degree Fahrenheit weather may actually be at high risk for things like hypothermia. However, the main consequence here that you should be taking away is not that some women may be at risk of hypothermia. The issue is that women put themselves in these situations willingly where they have the potential to be, you know, to be um, to be harmed, basically. So a less likely consequence of this low body awareness is hypothermia, but more likely consequences include wearing damaging or uncomfortable shoes, getting cosmetic surgery, wearing a waist trainer, getting permanent or tattooed makeup, even eating less. And it might not be that women are doing this purely to look good, but that over time, we do not perceive them as risky or we don't notice potential issues because we become so distanced from our bodily sensations. Some additional considerations were that we surveyed women who were patrons of bars and nightclubs. These are places where simply being feminine bodied increases the risk for sexual assault and being drugged. If these women who were waiting in line did not report feeling cold when they should, what other bodily states are they failing to recognize? Data from the American Addictions Association show that of the women who report being slipped a date rape drug, it usually is their drink that gets spiked. And drinks are usually spiked at house parties, bars, and clubs. The side effects of these drugs are things like delayed heart rate, sleepiness, loss of balance, body weakness, things that you need body awareness to be able to recognize. So if women's access to their body sensations is inhibited to the point where they don't recognize feeling cold, they likely won't recognize other physiological cues that warn of these potentially threatening situations. 
So of course, as all studies have, we had some limitations. First off, it was a correlational design. We decided not to do the lab experiment, but because of that, we cannot infer causality between our variables. There still may be a third variable that causes women to be both high in self-objectification and low in body awareness. Secondly, our self-report measures are subjective. Women could have felt cold but denied it, uh, possibly engaged in cognitive dissonance, maybe to justify their outfit choice, we'll never know. And lastly, I already discussed this, but it's possible that we captured state self-objectification. So to the extent that women's self-objectification in our study was heightened, we are not sure how these findings would translate to other contexts where there's less of an emphasis on appearance, like in the workplace or in educational settings. But bringing this all back to the data theory cycle, how did we do? What did our findings show? Well, we replicated the finding that self-objectification hinders body awareness. We highlighted an example of how this occurs in an ecologically valid setting, and we offered an explanation for an observed cultural phenomenon. But did we do a good study? Let me start out by saying that no study ever will be perfect. There are things out of your control, things that you won't have time or resources to include, and choices that you have to make that maybe others who read your study or who review it won't agree with. But that's what's great about science. It's collaborative, it's meant to be generative. Any study should be able to have future research build off of itself. So let me bring back the best practices for science outlined by the feminist uh, psychologists that I mentioned earlier. So first they point out that we should contextualize the research and we did, we contextualized this research question and the results in terms of women's socio-historical role in society. We also explicitly conducted research in the real world context that we wanted to study rather than in the lab. Um, secondly, uh, the feminist psychologist suggests that, you know, we, we aim to include people who are typically not represented in the research. And so that was one driving reason why we decided to leave the lab. We did not want to study more college students. Almost every study published nowadays in psych is with college students, and it's just not fully representative. We wanted to conduct a field study and observe women who just live in the city that we live in, in their natural environment, in outfits that they chose to wear. So that's what we did. We think that that's you know, a, a great aspect of the study. And also, as I mentioned, our sample was much more diverse than it would have been if we had collected data from college students, just in terms of socioeconomic status, racial diversity, sexual orientation, and the like. That being said, we still acknowledge that our sample was not large enough for us to look at differences between groups of women who undoubtedly have unique experiences with objectification. And we do talk about that in the paper. Additionally, they suggest that we promote disclosure and transparent reporting. This is such an important point given what's known as the replication crisis. You may have heard about it. Essentially, many studies, not just in psychology, but in fields like medicine as well, are failing to replicate when other researchers repeat them, which calls into question not only the validity of the theory and the results, but also the truthfulness of the researchers. Given this point, we were transparent with who on the research team were responsible for which aspects of the data collection, the study design, the writing, the analyses. And critically, we made all of our data and our syntax and our materials available for anyone to see on a website called the Open Science Framework. 
Lastly, they suggest that we expand access to research, not only by sharing our data and materials, but also making our scholarly literature publicly available. So like I said, we uploaded all of our data and materials, but we also made sure that the paper was available for free uh, to anyone who wanted to read it. Um, and then when the video went viral on TikTok, um, that prompted over 20,000 people to read the paper. So I think we succeeded there in, in expanding the access to this research. Even what I'm doing now, giving this talk and streaming it on TikTok is one of these pillars of, yeah, one of these pillars of like good feminist scholarship, bringing it to people who actually could benefit from it. And these suggestions that feminist psychologists present are in line with what's known as the open science or open scholarship movement, which is in essence, it's, its goal is to just be transparent in the choices that we make as researchers to make our materials widely available as well as our data. And this allows other researchers to use our data in larger studies um, and also to understand the analytic choices that we make should they want to replicate the study. So like I said, I made everything available on the open science framework, the paper, the syntax, the data, the material, so that if anyone wanted to rerun it, they could. Maybe someone who lived in a colder place, it would be great to have this replicated in a colder climate. And I also make sure to incorporate these practices into every study I do. This is just a snippet of some studies that I have pre-registered. This means that ahead of data collection, I detail everything that we're going to do in the study, the hypotheses, I specify the analytic choices we'll make, I upload all of it so that we can hold ourselves accountable when it comes time to analyze our data. Um, and it's also an effort to combat what's known as the file drawer problem. So the file drawer problem refers to the fact that in science, so many studies that we conduct never get published, uh, especially ones that don't align with the theories that we're testing. And this is a problem because it warps our understanding of these scientific processes. We're mainly aware of the studies that work, but if researchers are doing all these studies, testing a theory and they don't work and therefore are never published, does that theory actually hold? We don't know, we only see the studies that work. But by having all of our materials and all of our data uploaded and publicly available, we can see people's results regardless of whether or not they have been published in the peer review process. Unfortunately, these best practices that I followed, namely the expanded access to research and publicly sharing our data were exactly what enabled academics with much more power than me to harass me. This one person in particular, Yoel, uh, decided to go into our data, manipulate it, rerun all the analyses, include women who had failed our attention checks, go onto his podcast and publicly shame me basically, and say that we engaged in questionable research practices, that we were trying to falsify the results. Um, and that could only have happened because I made the data publicly available in a transparent way. So while these practices on the surface should be serving everyone in science as a whole, um, they've posed unique challenges to feminist scholars. And luckily, this is something that has recently been brought to the public attention. This paper was actually published two days after my Twitter incident happened, which was like so validating. Like I was going through this experience, this came out and I was like, wow, yes, like this is a case study of me. Um, so these challenges that it poses to people who do research on marginalized groups or who do research in ways that maybe don't align with the traditional lab experimental designs, um, these people often face backlash from the open science community. And that's led to it being termed the Bropen science community, because uh, it's basically full of bros. 
um, a space not super welcoming or focused on improving our rigor, but rather just there to kind of belittle researchers who don't already meet these established academics expectations. And yes, this recent controversy uh, is in regard to my Twitter fiasco. So, so why did this happen? Um, some factors contributing to this, fem this treatment of feminist researchers in the name of open science can be informed by the very research that we do. Like I said, this is very ironic. These are the processes that we study, this type of backlash, these attitudes about women and, and our competence. Research finds that feminist epistemology is often regarded as less scientific than other more mainstream modes. Women researchers are generally regarded to be less competent than men and masculine gender typed research topics are regarded as more scientific than topics perceived to be feminine. And this impacts us. Uh, it may lead to scientific bullying specifically toward women, including uh, allegations of malpractice, which is exactly what happened when a senior academic went on to his podcast to question the validity of our analyses and our research. It may result in adverse reputational and personal consequences and those in the early stages of their careers. These are people who have established positions in universities where I'll be applying when I go onto the job market next year. This is really a powered dynamic that puts uh, women and other marginalized groups of people kind of at risk in the already very elite academic system. So how can we thoughtfully critique research going forward? First, think about who the research benefits. Once you think about that, are those people included in the research? You know, who is the research for? And do the methods challenge the status quo? Have the researchers made an effort to be transparent? Do you see a statement about where their data is available? Have they maybe tried to share it publicly? Are you wary of the data because you think the design was poor or because it challenges your beliefs? If something challenges your beliefs, that's not enough to claim that it's bad science but you know, it is an opportunity to kind of get a different perspective. Most critically, I think is, have you read the research? It's so important to read the research rather than to read a summary of the research or someone's tweet about a research because about research, because generally it's not accurate. It's like playing telephone. Um, and please remember that peer reviewed research has already been through a rigorous process of scrutiny before it even gets published in a journal. Like I said, we went through three rejections and three rounds of intense revisions before our paper was even published. That's not to say that research can't have flaws, papers get retracted often, but just because something challenges your beliefs is not enough reason to say that it's bad science. If you do have questions, if you do want to know more about how something was done, if you think that maybe something is unclear, reach out to researchers directly. I don't think people know that you can really just email a researcher and say, hey, I'd love access to this paper because papers are usually behind paywalls. And when you pay for access to read a paper, the researchers don't get the money, the journal gets the money. So we are happy to provide you with our research to read whenever you're interested in it. So reach out to us directly, especially if you want to read the article, but also if you have questions about our methodological choices or just want to talk about ideas. Um, keep in mind that science is collaborative and no one study can do it all. So if you think that a, a study is missing something, maybe look and see if there are other studies being published that fill in the gaps, because that's really the point of science. And also remember that researchers are people. We all have biases and make mistakes, but we try our very best to avoid such mistakes. 
And I want to close out with a quote from Rosalind Franklin, who was a chemist who was critical in our understanding of the structure of DNA. She says that science and everyday life cannot and should not be separated. Thank you so much for attending this talk. I could not cover all of the research that I've conducted, but it's available on my website, which this QR code links to. Mm -hmm.